0: So, there you go, back to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to deal with something um, this week. The title of the message is, Who is Jesus? You'd think as a pastor I would know the answer to that question. So, this is a fairly uh, familiar section of scripture to most people. Um, Even if you don't know what the exact quote is, you know, book, chapter, and verse kind of thing, you've probably heard the statement who do you say that I am? Right? Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus talking to his disciples. Now, in this particular section, Jesus knows that his time is growing short. He knows there's some difficult days coming up. And sometimes the timeline of Scripture can, can get messed up in our head. So Matthew is 28 chapters. We're in chapter 16. There's something that happens at the break of chapter 16 that, that kind of needs to be understood. And in the timeline of Jesus' ministry, there's about a month, maybe two months left before Calvary, right? And so that means that Jesus' ministry has been going on for like three years, five months-ish, in 16 chapters. From 16 to 21 might be <laughs> might be a month, might be two months. And from chapter 21 to 28 is 7 days. So we think like oh 28 cha- no so up to this point Matthew has been hitting highlights He's been playing the highlight reel of Jesus' ministry. At this point, things start to slow down, and they start to slow down and get very, very detailed in Jesus' thinking and and, uh, in in the ministry and the truth of the gospel, because Matthew's trying to get to something. He's trying to move us in a direction. He's got all this backstory that he's got to get through, and now we get to this point And actually, I think it comes down to this question. There's two questions in here that I think all of a sudden hit the brakes on things, and all of a sudden you start seeing stuff slow down, and you have a shorter period of time over over a a longer section of chapters. Those questions are, who do people say that I am? We forget about that question in this section, but it's equally as important as the other one, and the other one is, who do you say that I am? The first question we tend to undervalue, and the second question, in my opinion, many people have never actually tried to answer for themselves. I have the same feeling a lot of times when I'm. <clears throat> Both of these questions have profound impacts on our lives, on our faith, and our ability to minister the gospel. So let's jump into this Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. First section, 13 through 20, reads like this. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say (coughs) that I, the Son of Man, am? You notice he almost like answers the question after he asks it. And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, uh, Peter, uh, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded disciples that they uh, they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. I love that part. Now that you've figured it out, keep it to yourself. So the interesting thing here is the the first question that Jesus asks is, who do other people say that I am? And then he wants to know who they say he is. So let me ask you this. Do you know and are you aware of what the people, the unbelieving people in your life believe about Jesus? Have you had that conversation with them? Do you think about that? Do you wonder what they think? Excuse me, I don't know why I'm coughing this morning. Do you you know what they think about your faith? Have you stopped and asked and have you paid attention to how they answer the questions? Now, the secular world, when they try to answer questions about Jesus, just to be plain, they're wrong. Okay? If they were right, they'd be believers. Okay? Okay? But just because they have the wrong answer does not mean that their answer is not worth listening to or valuable to listen to. It's hard for us to hear someone willingly criticize or have a wrong view about something that we care about. But it is so important that we allow people to speak those things to us so that we understand where they're coming from. And if we're humble enough, and if our ears are open enough, we might learn something important. We may actually learn what brought them to that view. Some of the most interesting people that I, tend, that I, that I get a chance to talk to sometimes are believers who have left the church, and they're willing to actually say why. Not fun to listen to. Not fun to listen to. But what I find is that most of them are just happy that someone was willing to listen without interrupting them every 10 seconds, letting them know how wrong they are. Just just sit down and listen. Let them talk. Then process it, pray about it, then answer. Answer. We might even find out that our own behaviors, depending on how close they are into our, uh, in our lives, we might find out that we might be the reason <clears throat> that they have a wrong view about God. That's always fun. I love being a living witness of why you don't need to take the Bible seriously. Uh, probably not the best way to go about it. Standing in front of God and saying, you know, most of your life was really good, but right here, what were you even thinking? Now, there are people in the world who are just committed to their unbelief. That might sound silly, but that is true um, uh, in the creation ministry. One of the things I hear from atheists, uh, scientific people in, in the, uh, the field of scientific atheism all the time, is that even if God revealed himself and, and could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything written about him in the Bible is true, they still wouldn't believe. That is an open confession of a lot of people in that, in that particular community and thought process. They wouldn't care if God stood right in front of them and begged them to believe. They still wouldn't believe because they don't think God is worthy of their worship. Yeesh. But people choose to believe for all kinds people choose to not believe for all kinds of reasons. We should at least be willing to listen to those. So what is it that the others said about Jesus. My favorite one is that you're John the Baptist. Now, the thing, reason <laughs> that's my favorite one is because they were, like, seen together. You know? It's like that old joke, like, I can't tell you that I am Batman, but me and Batman have never been seen together. Right? He's also a little taller than I am. Right? No. Other people characterized Jesus as... One of the prophets of old, great man of God, however you want to say it. And that, that got me thinking. I'm like, that's really interesting that that's what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write in here. Because there's, a, there's, an, there's an interesting uh, trend in the lives of people who don't believe. Okay, People who don't believe, who don't know Christ as Savior, is they tend to characterize Jesus in terms that they understand. That they can relate to, that they're familiar with, that makes them feel comfortable. You think about this if someone comes from an extreme religious background or even an abusive religious background, they exist. Let's own up to it and, and figure out how to not become those people, right? But when people come from that background, Jesus might actually, the name of Jesus might actually be the source of their pain. And the reason why they couldn't come to Christ, because maybe they were beaten because that's what their parents said Jesus was supposed to do, that Jesus said they were supposed to do. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? So the more rod, the more rod you, 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 you use on the child, the more humble the child's going to be. It was just idiotic. I've known churches who have handed out sticks to parents with, not kidding, engraved on it, rod of correction. Woo. Okay. A little extreme, a little on the extreme side, you know. But some people can't relate to Christ because of how Christ was used against them because they came from an extreme, abusive, religious background. What about people who come from maybe an atheistic background? Maybe they just see God as this mystical sky. You know, Jesus is just this mystical sky God which is a common term today. You can take your sky God and go do whatever you want. Jesus is just just this, just, this sky God that, that weak-minded people need in order to feel better about themselves. You see, I'm, I'm an intellectual. I have gone through school. I've got my master's or my PhD, so obviously I'm smart enough to not need Jesus, right? Well, I've listened to a lot of PhDs recently, I'm not sure how they got it, but if I could find that particular Cracker Jack box myself, that would be nice. Education, I'm finding out more and more as as I get older, has very little to do with understanding and wisdom, especially when you see what's going on on college campuses around our country. Both of those views are obviously wrong, right? But if we're not willing to listen to them, then we have no idea how to minister to those people. We don't know how to reach them. If we just hear a wrong view and we turn it off, then we're no better than they are. And we are supposed to go into the world. We're supposed to go into the dark places and bring light which means we have to be willing to step into conversations that are going to be a little uncomfortable. If you want to know what those conversations look like, come back next week. And we're supposed to be patient and wise. That means we need to understand, we need to be able to be willing to bring that truth to those people in those situations. So how did the disciples answer the question? Peter was the only one that we have, only ones whose answer we have, and he says, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." I want you to think about the implications of that statement for Peter at that particular point in time. If the wrong ears heard him make that declaration, he could be killed, for blasphemy, for referring to someone as the Messiah. This was not a small statement. This was not an easy statement to make. You are Christ, son of the living God. That meant the promised Messiah, the Savior of men, the fulfillment of all prophecy, the one whom our nation has been waiting for from the very beginning. You are it. Think about this just for a second. If you're willing, say this out loud with me. Jesus is the Son of God. Sent to pay the debt of my sin. I owe him everything. I owe him everything. Did that, as you said it, have a physical effect on you at some point in time? Every time, after I wrote this, every time I would say it out loud, every time I did, I could feel my body temperature go up just a little bit. Because I started to realize, like, this is what Peter is is, is doing at this particular moment. And you gotta ask yourself, it's easy to just say something like this. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? If your answer is yes, you do believe it, then what are you going to do in response to it? How is that belief going to play out in the rest of our lives? I owe him everything. There is nothing in my life that belongs to me. All of it is his. Everything. No matter how young I am, no matter how old I am, no matter how successful I am, no matter how unsuccessful I am, I owe him everything everything how am i going to make that connection so that that truth is seen through the rest of my life Jesus' response to peter was blessed are you on this rock i will build my church I will give you the keys to heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome to see that. That's a pretty good response. <clears throat> now, if Jesus was, was playing 20 questions with me, and we get to the end of it, like, that's how he decides to answer. You are blessed. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I'm going to give you the, uh, this is, this is going to be good. I'm going to be like, this is pretty good. I'm, I'm going to die on a cross upside down. I can't wait. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let's deal with that here for just a quick second. There's a lot of confusion around that. There are two uses of the word rock here. They're not the same word in Greek, and they don't mean the same thing. First one is Petros, which is Peter's name. And the second one is Petra, meaning rock. The question is, what was the stone on which the church would be built? You are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. Now keep in mind the question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Right? This is where this is all coming from. And the question has to be asked, is the stone that the church will be built on Peter or the confession that Peter made? Is it the confession that Jesus is the Christ and that is the stone on which the church will be built? Or is it Peter? Now, for a long time, people would say, well, it's Peter, and there's a couple of problems with that. If you look at how things unfolded through history, it's really hard to think that Peter is the one on which the church was built, because where did Peter spend most of his time? In Jerusalem, not doing what Jesus told him to do. Stay here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, and then go out. You will be my witnesses. He stayed there. Who was it that brought the gospel to the rest of the world? It was Paul. Now, did Peter do some ministry? Of course he did, but nowhere near what Paul did. So to say that Peter is the rock that the church will be built on, historically, not a lot of evidence behind that, but the confession is on this rock, this rock that I am the Christ, son of the living God, that is what he's going to build his church. The central message of Paul's work, the central message of the disciples' work was it sal- is salvation and forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ as Messiah. It's a confession that Peter made in front of Jesus. It's my opinion, it's not the same opinion that everybody has, that the rock on which the church is built is that, not Peter. Now, there's also a bit of debate around this same topic, is whether or not, and I'm just going to answer this because this is a question that I get every now and then. This is not necessarily connected to the message. Is whether or not Peter was the first pope? Anyone ever heard that one? OK, simplified answer. No. No. First off, Catholic Church didn't exist. Let's just point that one out. OK? Now did the term so, so there, here, here's where uh, it gets confusing. People say, "Well, the Catholic Church is the oldest church in, in the world. Well, no, but yes. OK? Because the term Catholic in the early church, that word was there, and it meant the church of common man. More importantly, it meant the church of common belief. So when the, when the people of God would gather, that Greek word is ecclesia, means those called out would gather, the gathering was referred to as, uh, I can't remember what the Greek word is, but basically it's the Catholic church. But what it meant was a gathering of people who had like-minded beliefs, It wasn't a denomination. It didn't become a denomination for like 400 years. Depending on which historian you talk to, it's somewhere between 320 and 540. It all depends on which, honestly which Catholic group you are listening to at the time. So no, Peter was not the first pope. (laughs) Um, Peter was a disciple. That's it. But if Peter got it right, I know someone's going to send me a nasty email about that. But it's okay. They make fun reading throughout the week. So if Peter was right, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Why did Jesus tell him not to tell anybody? Isn't that why he was here? The reason why Jesus told him not to tell anyone at this point is because the goal of Jesus' ministry was coming up. It was going to be it was, it was not a lot of time before that goal was going to come into being. And if they would have announced that at that point, there would have been a revolution. And it would have been an armed revolution. It would have been nasty. But the thing we want to remember is that the revolution was never the goal. An uprising was never the goal. The goal was what was coming, and the goal was the cross of Calvary. That was always Jesus' goal. It, it seems to be hard for some people to, to wrap their brains around uh, brains around. A route? I don't even sure what a route means. But understanding that Jesus' number one goal from the day he took his first breath as a man was to get to Calvary. There was never another goal. It was always the cross. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's asking the disciples at this point, do you know who I am? Now, they they knew who he was, but they still hadn't figured out what he came to do. They still had a different idea in his mind. 16 through 28 reads like this. I'm sorry, 21 through 28 (coughs) reads like this. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside. Remember, this is the guy who a second ago was like, you're the son of God. You're the one, you're the one that was sent from the beginning of time, you are it. Peter took him aside. He was like, what are you doing? Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this, is, this, this shall not happen to you. <laughs> and Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, just a second ago, it wasn't like, you know, like, you're, you know, you're, you're like, blessed and, you know, the kingdom, keys to the kingdom of heaven, what you bind in heaven, you know, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You know, it's, it's kind of an opposite effect here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it of a man that he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that is one of the most confusing verses in, in the, the, the first part of the New Testament, that verse right there. When we get to chapters 24 and 25, we'll dig into this a little bit more. But uh, we're not going to go there at the moment. So, what's the connection here? The connection here is that Peter was the one that declared Jesus is the Christ. Now he's rebuking him. Don't say that, Lord. Far be it from you. Now, there's a lot that gets lost in translation. And so we can read this one way and it can give us, it can move us in a direction that's not necessarily what, what the scripture is trying to, trying to relay. Um, so what Peter, Peter is not saying, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, shut up, stop, talk, stop talking like this. What he's saying is, may God spare you from this. It's, it's, it's slightly different. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suffer this, I'm gonna die, but it's okay, I'm gonna be raised in the third day. And Peter says, no, 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 God, God is bigger than that. He will spare you from this. And Jesus' response sounds a bit harsh, calling Peter Satan, but he wasn't, <coughs> he wasn't calling Peter the man Satan. That's not what he was doing. If, if, you, if, I were to, if I were to try to have this conversation in a slightly more modern vernacular, okay, trying to, trying to not just necessarily use the text but get the same point across, it might sound something like this. Jesus is saying, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be taken captive and killed don't worry about it. I will be raised in the third day. Peter steps in. Jesus, don't say these things. God will certainly protect you. It's not like this hasn't happened before, right? So the, the things that you're saying are not going to happen. And Jesus' response probably would have, would have come across more like this. Take that limited, fear-based, ungodly thinking and throw it in the trash where it belongs. Because what Peter is saying, because he doesn't know, is that that's not going to happen. God is not going to make you go through this because Peter doesn't know that that's the goal. Jesus is telling them the plan. And Peter's saying, certainly not. And Jesus tells him, get that ungodly thinking out of here. It's not the goal. It lets you know that Peter actually didn't know who he was. Not yet. Peter knew who Jesus was, but he still didn't understand what Jesus came to do. And the truth is, none of them understood what Jesus came to do. Peter was thinking with limited human eyes. Until the resurrection, the disciples would follow, but they would struggle in their thinking. They still didn't get it. And why would they? They didn't understand his birth. They didn't understand his ministry. Why were they going to understand his death? But you think about this, the disciples didn't truly know Jesus until the understanding of what he came to do was revealed to them. Can I say that again? The disciples did not truly know Jesus until the understanding of what he came to do was revealed to them. And in my opinion, that's the difference between going to church and knowing Christ. There's a lot of unbelievers who go to church. They go to church to punch a clock. They think they need to. And then there's people who know Christ. We go to church for a very different reason. Because the truth of what Christ came to do has been revealed to us. We get it. That's why we're here. Because we owe him everything. The world that we live in today wants to redefine who Jesus is. That that question, who do people say that I am, is answered very differently by the world around us. And not just the world outside the church, but the world inside the church today is continually trying to redefine who Jesus is. That question, who do they say that I am? There's people in the pulpit right now wearing the little, little sashes around for priests. I don't have any problem dealing with priests, but when it's a rainbow flag and they're trying to prove a point, they're trying to redefine who Jesus is. There is a version of the Bible right now that is used in some pulpits. I'm not making this up. Please don't believe me. Go look it for look 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 uh, look to it for yourself. It's called the Queen James Bible. Uh, now remember that whole standing before God in judgment thing. Whoever put that one out. <laughs> I think they're in trouble. I think they're in a lot of trouble. Right now, the Chinese government is having the Bible rewritten. There's a lot of people who don't know this. It's being rewritten to basically take the deity out of Christ. They're trying to combat the growth of Christianity in their own, in their own, uh, in their own country. Give you an idea, one of the sections that has actually come out was a section of Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery. When he says, those who be without sin cast the first stone, and of course everybody got every, everybody left, what they added was, at that point, Jesus picked up, a, uh, picked up a rock and stoned the woman to death and said, I am also a sinner. Not, don't believe me. Please don't believe me. Go find it for yourself, because it's out there. This is the world that we have to live in. This is the darkness we bring light to. And if we're not ready, if we don't know what they say about him, then we don't know how to bring the light to the situation. We become no different than them. The lost can't answer questions about salvation. They can't answer questions about faith. They don't understand what repentance is. They don't understand what sin is. They don't understand what the regenerate heart is. They don't don't understand uh, grace. They don't understand why Christ had to die on the cross. They don't get this. And the problem is, there's so many people in the church who don't get it either. Of course, I'm going to heaven. I come to church. I don't know if you realize this, but so does the. I know that sounds people are like that's creepy. Yup. He's here. You know what he's looking for? In the nicest way I can say it, those that are uninterested. He looks for the weak, the ones who are not committed, the ones the ones who are who are who are here but not present, so that he can mess with you for the rest of the week to drive you further and further away from the truth. Then you come back to church, punch your clock, you feel good about yourself. This is so great. I feel so spiritual today. I even had communion. Okay. In the first century, they used to have communion to the point where people would get drunk. Not the same kind of communion we serve. Exactly. Exactly. Don't let practice be the substitute for faith. Do we know who he is? Who do you say that he is? Today, the world that we live in does not like the idea of a Savior who came to die to atone for our sins. There are whole branches of the Christian church that are denying that doctrine. Jesus did not come to die for your sins. You can't prove that. It's actually, if you have a Bible, it's actually in it it's not hard to find but if you don't value the word of God as the word of God then it doesn't matter they don't like the idea of repentance or an absolute moral standard but as the people of God who do we say he is? who do you say he is? Do we stand on the rock that is the confession of our faith or do we hide behind it hoping our friends won't notice we're there? So There's a difference between standing on the rock. How many of you played King of the Mountain when you were a kid? Just in case you're wondering, I didn't win that game a lot. Mainly because it took me too long to climb on up whatever we were on. When you're this big at 15, it's really difficult to do. Anyway, moving right along. (laughs) (coughs) Nope, I'm just just moving right along. When you stand on the rock, you get noticed. You hide behind the rock. You might not get noticed, but you're also not standing on it. Will we take our cross, or should I say, will we take up our cross? Will we take up the burden of faith, and will we follow the path laid out by Christ? Or will we walk a compromised path, telling people only what they want to hear because we're worried about offending them, or having our YouTube account canceled? So much of the modern church today continually moves away from historic, biblically-centered Christianity, that we must think in a different way if we really believe that we're in the end times. And honestly, folks, I I do believe we are. I just don't think it's going to play out the way most people think it's going to play out. But I do think we're we're in the end times. I just, I can't see it happening any other way, but who knows? Time will tell. But what we're told is in the end there will only be a remnant. What that means is there's only going to be a small group of people who call themselves Christians who actually are. There's going to be a large church around the world, and there is. But those who believe will be a remnant. How do you know which one you're a part of? I think it comes down to this question. Who do you say he is can you answer the question in the affirmative just like just like peter did you are christ son of the living god you are jesus you came to die for my sin and i owe you everything or is it oh he's the god of the bible i hope that's enough that's no, not enough it never has been and never will be The path that Jesus laid out for us is only found in one place, and it will only ever be found in one place. The pages of scripture, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, is irrelevant. God doesn't need your permission to be true or to be right, I should say. He is because he's God, and we need to understand that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you're continually doing in our lives, in the church, In the presence of your people, Lord, with all that is going on in the world today, with all the trouble, with all the hate, with all the misinformation, with all the lies, with all the propaganda, help us to not get caught up in the nonsense. Help us to stay true to what you have said, to what your word has declared. Help us to just keep our mind on you. No matter how much the pressure is around us, it doesn't matter. In the end, we stand before you, either yours or not. You said we are either for you or we are against you. There is no middle ground. Help us to stay for you, centered on your word, following your truth, with kindness, with gentleness, with self-control, with care for those who don't put their faith in you, Lord, that we may know and understand how to reach out to them, not to be bitter, not to be arrogant, not to be self-centered, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to find ourselves fortunate as those who know you in a day such as today. Help us to stay focused on the task at hand. We ask this in Jesus' name.